15 Thursday night and today. Uh, so yeah, I think it's starting to get get to be old hat. Feels feels good. We're having some technical difficulty. Just this is the number here. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. Okay. All right. Because I'm gonna roll. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, what I wanted to talk about today is uh, kind of circling back to where we. Uh, finished up last Sunday morning with the final talk of the Sashin. And that was with chapter seven of, uh, of that first Sashin covered in uh, Coben's collection of talks, uh, Embracing Mind, because I skipped over one of the subsections of that chapter, uh, in order to make sure that we talked about embracing mind, that, which was the title of a subsection. Uh, and the, the section I skipped over is, is uh, an unusual title for a text in the Soto Zen tradition. It's titled Kensho. Uh, that we don't hear too much about in Soto Zen. Uh, it's kind of, de-emphasized, you might say, uh, as compared to Rinzai, where it's very much a point of focus and emphasis. So actually, my plan for this morning was to go over uh, briefly what Coben has to say about it. And then uh, to I uh, decided it I would... Uh, pull a, a book off my bookshelf that had gathered quite a bit of dust over the years, uh, Three Pillars of Zen by Philip Kaplow, since that talks quite a bit about Ken Show. And I thought, you know, let's, let's uh, uh, give the, uh, the Rinzai folks a, a voice in this too. So we'll kind of have both camps being represented here. Uh, and I hopefully we'll find that there isn't that big of a difference between the two camps, uh, at least in what I'm going to be sharing this morning. So anyway, here's what uh, Coben has to say about this subject of Kensho. And you know, for those of you that that aren't uh, lack some clarity about when what Kensho is. Hopefully, uh, Coben's comments will will help to to fill that out a little bit, uh, and then we'll we'll just kind of when we open it up for uh, for the questions and comments, I'm hoping that uh, that you will raise any questions that you might have about it because it's a uh, like I said, it's a subject that's not talked about much in Soto Zen. So this will be one of those rare opportunities. Uh, but first off, Coben uh, says that Kensho means that while you struggle between the ideal self and this limited poor thing, which is here, they are actually one. 
So the ideal self is what is sometimes referred to as big mind, the absolute, the oneness of all things, that our union with all things. This is the ideal self. And I think most practitioners, uh, whether it's Soto or Rinzai, come into the practice with that sense that they're on this uh, journey to, towards discovering that ideal self within themselves. And there is built into that uh, a sense of, of struggle between that self, which can be hard to catch a glimpse of, catching a glimpse of is is a good metaphor it points to the ox herding pictures so they come into play not in what uh coben says but just as backdrop for those of you that are familiar with that series and uh the the uh, paintings are actually on the wall at wilton road in the dining room so uh, when we are able to resume practice there again, please uh, take a look at Adam. Uh, and, uh, and you can see how that portrays uh, exactly what we're gonna be talking about this morning. So this struggle between the ideal self and this limited poor thing which is here our small self, our truly our struggling self, struggling to get by in this world of differentiation and all the challenges that we face. But the final phrase, this, uh, this insight that they are actually one and the same, our limited poor thing, and the ideal self. There's no distinction. This is kind of the heart of Kensho, which means it's not about uniting these two or becoming one, because it's originally one. That's our original face, as they say in, in the koan literature. It's originally one. And it's always one. It's always that way. It doesn't just happen at special moments. At special moments, we awaken to that basic fact of our existence and the existence of all other beings. So this realization is the typical usual experience of Kensho. And Coben makes a very insightful comment here that hopefully can be uh, of some help to everybody on this path, because I, I know that can be a sense of frustration where people feel like they're not having that type of experience. 
But Coben says, in one way or the other, every one of us has had such an outrageous experience, he, he terms it. Because otherwise, he doesn't think that we'd be here. If we didn't have that glimpse initially, in some fashion or another, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be doing the practice. And each time when we do have these glimpses, these insights that allow us to realize this original self within ourselves, see our original face, at those times, the battle within us somewhat, he says, ends. There's this sense of, of, uh, of serenity. Maybe we could even call it bliss, which is arising because of that fact that this struggle, this battle, all of a sudden has been resolved. That's not a permanent state. Don't get me wrong in that sense. However, at that moment, you know, it's a joyous event until we revert back to being the limited poor things that we all are. And we all are that. Even when we're having the insight into our original nature, our Buddha nature. Because that doesn't change anything. We are what we are, you might say. So part of this insight entails that the insight that other existences out there, at least what we typically perceive as other existences, are not others anymore. And that has some important implications for how we relate to our lives, to, again, what we usually refer to as other existences. Because if we don't see them as others anymore, that means that the problem becomes much more serious when we see suffering or dukkha in the world. It's not apart from us. It's not separate from us. It becomes our own dukkha, our own suffering. And this is important for our Thursday night uh, studies that we're just getting underway with on ecodharma. So the suffering of the planet is our suffering. And it's not just an idea. We feel it deeply. We get it. And that is what changes our life and our way of treating others. So again, as we're, as we're regularly doing, we come back to this, uh, this unison of 
prajna or wisdom and compassion. As prajna grows within us, compassion has to, because of the nature of the insights that that uh, that occur within us because of uh, the growth of prajna. Which is why, just to quickly circle back to the ox herding pictures, that final picture after the great enlightenment depicts the monk coming back down off the mountain, uh, just all disheveled, uh, just looks like uh, an itinerant monk, but he's in the marketplace with what's referred to as bliss bestowing hands. In other words, trying to be of service to others. What do we do with enlightenment? We don't remain up on the mountaintop because the nature of, of what we've seen, the insight we've gained is to come right back down into the marketplace and bring that to our interactions with all beings because we we recognize through intuitive insight that the beings we help are us we're helping ourselves and we get that intellectually as we'll see studying ecodharma it's hard to argue intellectually theoretically the evidence is all too clear. But we can see it more deeply than that. And it's important, I think, that we do so. Otherwise, just having the ideas may not be sufficient. Because our ideas don't serve us generally in the way we conduct our lives. Our conditioning keeps coming back again and again and again. There's, there's a, a field within economics now called uh, behavioral economics. So you have an ideal version of how, given free market theory, how people should behave. But they don't behave that way. They behave in very irrational ways. That's because we're pretty complex creatures. We make decisions based on emotions. And many other factors, deep conditioning. So behavioral economics is trying to figure out how do people actually come together and engage with one another in a so-called free marketplace. Our ideas are that, well, they, uh, they're, they're, uh, they're acting out of self-interest. But uh, what, what an individual may consider to be self-interest uh, from a distance viewed somewhat more objectively looks to be pretty harmful, actually. Ecodharma is going to look at that on a very big scale. 
where the nature of the harm is unfathomable. So this is why it has to go beyond just our, our ideas, because our ideas don't drive our behavior. They may impact it, but they're not the ultimate drivers. So we really do need to go through a transformation collectively at society at large if things are going to change to the degree they need to. It can be backed up by theory, ideas, concepts, but to actually make the change happen, we've got to change more than just our ideas. We've got to change a deeper sense of understanding, realization about what's important. So this ability to be instantly connected to others, sharing their suffering through this experience we, we term compassion, and also another one of, that's one of the uh, Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, Another one is sympathetic joy. So we're also immediately sharing their joy. And contemporary psychological thought, uh, looking more deeply into how, how that phenomenon works, came up with uh, with a theory they termed mirror neurons that actually at a physiological level within our brains, we do feel the suffering of others and we do feel the joy of others. We mirror what they're experiencing. Just another way of, of looking at our, the way our interconnectedness is experienced in our lives. So this sense of Kensho is I'm about to, to change over from Coben to, uh, to Philip Kaplow and his teacher, Yasatani Roshi. Uh, Kensho is about having this, this immediate insight, and it is immediate, an insight into our true nature, our union with all beings that's always in place. It's always there, whether we're aware or not. And the beautiful thing about that basic fact of our existence is that we have the opportunity at all times to awaken to that truth. We don't have to create some special conditions to be able to see it because it's always there.
But as we'll see, and as Dogen taught, you know, zazen is a way that we can we can kind of align ourselves physically and mentally and spiritually to 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 be in alignment with that true aspect of our nature. So we're going to look at that as well, which is, of course, an important part of, of the Zen lineage that Coben is carrying forward, which means that we're also carrying forward. At Crooked River Zen Center is part of the Phoenix Cloud lineage. So now flipping over to Kaplow, coming from three pillars of Zen. He says that the, this Ken show is, is only the first sight of truth, which is how it's depicted in the ox herding pictures, catching that initial glimpse, fleeting glimpse of the ox. It's like now you see it, you think, but it's gone. That's the initial journey. But there's enough there that you, you're following the tracks. You're engaging the path. And how do we do that? As Kaplow expresses, whether this first side of truth is merely a glimpse or, you know, in some rare occasions, it can be a really sharp, deep view. Either way, it, it gets enlarged through Zazen. That's our lineage. That's our practice. So there's this this glimpse, and then we practice. And without the practice, the glimpse is just kind of a nice memory you, you carry forward with you. But it's not actively engaged, and it's, it can't become transformative. because it's not part of the way you embody your life. Zazen embodies it. And as, as Kaplow expresses it uh, in a little more detail, he says, unless you know, these little Kensho glimpses are fortified by the Japanese term is Joriki. And it's, it's energy, it's effort. You know, part of the Eightfold Path is right effort. One of the six paramitas or perfections is effort, energy. Unless we bring that to bear, and, and Kaplow calls it samadhi strength, then the particular power 
or, or rather the samadhi strength is the particular power developed through zazen. Unless we bring that practice and the development of samadhi strength, then the vision of oneness that's, that's glimpsed in Kensho, and this is especially true if it's faint to begin with, which it typically is, then in time it becomes clouded and eventually just fades into a pleasant memory. Instead of remaining an omnipresent reality shaping our daily life. That's how Kaplow describes it. So Kensho in and of itself is simply an inducement to practice. And the practice becomes our way of, of realizing that awakening, devout, cultivating it, making it grow in our life. Or as Kaplow puts it, which sounds like it could have been spoken by Dogen, Zazen is the actualization of our true nature. So the 60 minutes of Zazen we did before this morning's talk began, we were actualizing what I'm now talking about. It's how we actually do it. So Dharma talks are typically seen as just kind of being pep talks, encouragement to go back and practice Zazen. That's the heart of the path. And talks cannot replace that. They can only help keep bringing us back to our cushions, to our benches and chairs. And there's an interesting dynamic that gets pointed out between this, this experience of Kensho and practice. It's said that the more deeply you experience Kensho, the more you perceive the need for practice. We might think the opposite would be true, or at least maybe some of us hope it would be. That way we can lighten, lighten up on the practice. To the extent we uh, deepen our insights, uh, then we don't have to practice as much, when actually the reverse is true. The deeper we go with insights, the more energized we become with the practice. We begin to see in a direct way that that really is the essence of life. So we have to find the time and the energy to do that. We become devoted to the practice. And it's a, it's a devotion arising from within ourselves. It's not an external thing. It's not somebody else telling you to do that. It doesn't work that way. I said, with with talks, teachings, I mean they're they're merely pep talks. We all our energy, our motivation 
can flag from time to time and we need some inspiration. But that's all the Dharma teachings are. And then we come back to the Zazen, which is the actualization of our inherently pure Buddha nature. Inherently. It's not anything we're adding to it. We're not, not creating it. It's inherent. It's original. Without it, we couldn't be. Every time we open any of our senses, including our consciousness, our, our, our awareness of our thoughts, every time we're, we're actualizing our inherently pure Buddha nature. It's always present. We hear the rain coming down. When that comes to an end, when we hear the birds coming back out. And we take the opportunity to get out and go for a walk. If you're like me and you're lucky enough to live along a creek, you can hear the birds and the rushing of the water. And there should be a lot of it rushing in another hour. <laughs> This is all inherently pure Buddha nature. And the sounds of the traffic, although those are pretty muted these days, but still, there's an occasional motorcycle later this afternoon. They'll probably be out. It's supposed to be a nice day. Whatever we experience, is just an emanation of this inherently pure Buddha nature. Everything. And how do we access it? It's from dropping off, letting go, opening up. So we don't have to do anything other than let go of our fixed views our ideas of, of how things are. Let those continue to drop off and then open your eyes, ears, mind to what's there. Because what's there is always this inherently pure Buddha nature. It's just that we have all of these accretions which block our, our ability to experience this pure nature. In modern lingo, we could say we're projecting our deluded sense of self and others onto all of our experiences. We immediately, we have that algorithm that, that converts it into that worldview. 
So in a manner of speaking, this is kind of like eliminating, cleaning out those algorithms and seeing that they don't work anymore. That they're all driven as algorithms are towards a particular purpose. And if it's liberation we're seeking, eliminate the whole batch of them. And we see, experience our nature as it is. And then we can come back and engage with the world of this and that. And we're going to turn our attention momentarily to that because that's also part of the practice of realization. It's not just about having special experiences. So Ken Show, and it's one of the reasons why it doesn't get spoken of very much at all in Soto Zen, because it, it, it can hook us in very unhelpful ways and we go chasing after it. When that's not the heart of it. So we need to also spend a little bit of time this morning looking at that fact and why that's so and what does practice in its full breadth really look like. So since it's through this world of oneness that we can begin to see the world of differentiation, thanks to these glimpses, then what ends up happening is this world of differentiation also becomes clearer. So when we come back from a more universal experience into the world of this and that, this and that have taken on a different quality. And there are a number of Buddhist teachings, including the way in which Dogen starts off one of his uh, best known and most important texts, Genjo Koan, which just happened to have handy here. He says, and this is kind of uh, the, the elongated Dogen version of uh, first there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is as Dogen puts it, as all things are Buddha Dharma, there is delusion and realization, practice, birth and death, and there are Buddhas and sentient beings. So there's the world of all these distinctions, differentiations. That's how we enter into this whole mix. We're very well acquainted with that world. The next stage, as the myriad things are without an abiding self, there is no illusion, no realization, no Buddha, no sentient being, no birth and death. Art Sutra, this is Prajnaparamita. So we go from the world of differentiation into the world of differentiation. 
or I'm sorry, into the world of, of, uh, of unity. And, but that's not the final step. And the ox herding pictures portray this as well, because the Enso figure is only the eighth of the 10 pictures. So there's more to the practice than just having the great awakening. The full union with your true nature. And as Dogen expresses it, once we move to the ninth and the tenth pictures of the ox herding series, the Buddha way is basically leaping clear of the many and the one. Thus, there are birth and death, delusion and realization, sentient beings and Buddhas. So first there's a mountain and there is no mountain and then there is. But the mountain at the end of that process has completely transformed. And like I was suggesting, we see it with a heightened clarity, the same kind of clarity with which we can see things in what's termed Kensho, where we, we have the experience of the oneness of all things. And this is where our practice takes place. It's not to just hide out, hang out in this uh, beautiful world of oneness. Or to use the uh, imagery of the Lotus Sutra, the magic city. To just kind of get into that bliss state, which I mentioned is, is part of a Kensho experience. There is that sense of like the ending of the struggle. But the interesting thing is when we re-engage the world, there's at least a lessened sense of struggle. And sometimes there can be almost no sense at all, even though we're back in the world of differentiation. We bring that with us out of the insight into our true nature. And this is how we see with much greater clarity the true nature of our world of this and that, of differentiation, the world we have to navigate as part of our lives. We can't leave it any more than we can leave our, our true nature, our pure nature, because they're both simultaneously part, part of who we are moment after moment after moment. So it's their merging that's the practice. So we have these teachings like the perfections, the paramitas. How do we practice in the world with generosity, with virtue, with effort, with patience, with meditation? with wisdom. These are the guide, the guideposts to living an awakened life. 
and a life of compassion and sympathetic joy. So now we can feel the preciousness of each object in the universe. Because the insight we've had about ourselves, part of that same insight is that uh, that's true of, of everything else. And the reason why it's so essential that we come back into the world of differences is that we can only help people when we're able to recognize and accept the differences among them. One size does not fit all. That's true for spiritual traditions too. You know, I feel that this practice of Soto Zen, Buddhism, Phoenix Cloud lineage, you know, this fits me very, very well. But if I went forth out of the conviction that this is the right path for everybody, right? I uh, likely start causing a lot more harm than good out there. Now, Dogen, interestingly, did, I mean, Fukanza Zenji means it's a universal recommendation for the practice of Zazen. But, contemplative practices run throughout the various Buddhist traditions and the non-Buddhist traditions. So his, his take on that does not seem to me to run counter to this statement that one size does not fit all that there are different ways of practicing Zaza, contemplative practices. So one final comment, and then we'll, we'll open it up, is just to bring what I've said into the context of, of uh, distinction that I've talked about in recent weeks between the sudden and the gradual approaches to Zen. A very big deal was made about that uh, back in the, uh, the first century or two of the, de the development of Zen in China. Uh, and the reality is, and this gets portrayed as such in Kaplow's book as well, uh, is that you know, sudden, sudden and gradual are both very important. Sudden is like our experience of, of a kenship. It just, boom. The gradual, however, is our coming back from that and devoting ourselves to the practice day after day after day. And so in that sense, gradual and sudden are also, you know, it's this distinction, like the relative and the absolute, that comes together. They, they need each other.
They can't exist on their own because suddenness without the gradual aspect quickly fades away and is of no consequence. And as Coben pointed out, you know, without this suddenness, we probably wouldn't be here. We've had some experience, some sense that's put us on our cushions and brought us together to practice more formally. So I think uh, let's stop there and uh, see if anybody has anything they'd like to say on the matter. Dean? Yes. Um, what is the difference between Ken show and enlightenment? Am I well, missing something? <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead. You had something else? No, I'm just, oh. I can't, I can't seem to figure out the difference. Well, as I think the important difference as it's usually seen uh, with those terms is that Ken show kind of has built into it a very fleeting uh, temporary aspect to it as it gets portrayed in the ox herding pictures you just get a glimpse enlightenment can have uh, a sense to the way some people take that term. And I think this is largely uh, because of the way it's applied to like the Buddha, who once he was enlightened, he was enlightened. So it's like, well, that's it. And Kensho, Kensho never has that uh, connotation. So I, I think that's probably the most important distinction to draw is that sense of this is just a fleeting experience. But, <laughs> it can kind of uh, help fuel our our day-to-day -day practice. Okay, good, I understand it now. Okay, okay. <laughs> Mark, Shinma. Uh, I just had a comment that mm -hmm. uh, uh, the ex your explanation about um, right near the end about the gradual and the sudden um, need each other had that that really helps um, clarify and I know I've heard it before but it sometimes hearing it over and over it sinks in mm -hmm. um, with what I often find myself um, uh, experiencing or dealing with and the fact that um, Sometimes I wish I would have found this practice of Zazen and Soto Zen in particular, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, because I, I look back and I think, oh, you know, I've had Buddhist statues and stuff for <laughs> 20, 30 years, you know, sitting around my house and, you know, it, it, it really and I and I've meditated off and on 
throughout my life for at least the last 20 years or so. But really, um, I haven't had the depth that I've had the last few years of practicing Zazen. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, anyhow, I just that that gradual it it is what it is sort of you know right and to just sort of um be present with where you're at and because otherwise you're just caught up in the past or you know that clinging to you know wishing to have had this um experience um, a lot further in my present existence. <laughs> uh-huh. So, so I kind of can I can sort of see the whole um, inducement of Kensho and um, enlightenment because you know there's part of me that thinks, oh, if I would have had this years ago, I'd have you know a lot more Kensho, you know, collect a lot more of it. <laughs> right that's kind of the way we typically view things but but with with the practice we can come to see that uh actually the sense of perfect and complete right here right now just as it is kind of crosses all that stuff about the past completely off off the the slate here it's it's like well you've been put at this place at this moment that's where where practice occurs actualizing the fundamental point it's right here right now forget about you know yesterday uh 10 years ago 30 years ago it's right now and that's where our effort gets gets spent and that's the whole that's eternity right there that's everything is right here in front of you so if you take care of that and conversely if you had done all that stuff in the past it still all comes back to what what's right here right now so practice has to be immediate and if you take care of that you've taken care of everything there's nothing left to be done so that's what makes it continuous practice moment after moment after moment the the essential nature of of being in each moment and bringing our practice that intent that intensely to feel that and then it's not you know if kensho happens you know as we were talking about recently it's like well that's an accident that's fine you know but we're not trying to create that. That's where the hook can get set in us and we're chasing after it. And then it becomes a hindrance to practice. So when, when we do have it, you know, we just don't, we don't uh, throw a, a celebratory uh, party over it or anything. We go back to practicing. Practice is never ending. That that um, that's a, the hard one of the hard parts of 
my practice or this practice is um, you want to, there's part of me that like wants to share it with everybody and, mm-hmm. you know, get everybody in my family to start practicing Zaza. <laughs> and it hasn't happened. <laughs> but That's where that, that deep teaching, when, when, the, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. We, we have to keep that yeah. in mind. Yeah, right. Yeah, and there are many ways of helping others that that aren't about you know pushing off our our specific forms of practice. So, skillful means is about being able to to be helpful to others based on their circumstances, rather than mine and seeing it. But well, this has been good for me, so I should have them do that if they're practicing uh, Christians. How can, how, how can you help them deepen their Christian practice? They don't need to be converted. Yeah. Just, we can help people deepen wherever they're at. Yeah, I think like my mother, she, she, I think she gets her zazen or contemplative practice in her garden, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyhow, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Sean. Hey, Dean, real quick, uh, that three pillars of Zen, what page were you reading from in that one? Oh, from uh, the three from, pillars? From the- Oh, uh, I was kind of jumping around, actually. There was no, like, one section. I was jumping. But it was all from the first, it was within the first 60 pages or so. Okay. Because once he gets into uh, the actual Sashin and the Q&A with students, uh, by interest level in that text, plummets to, ne- to, to negative territory, actually. But uh, the introductory comments, actually, uh, I, I had uh, forgotten how, uh, how helpful they could be. It was, it was just that when, when, as you get further on and, and during the, the interactions with students, the can show as, as uh, something you're chasing after started to really loom large. And that's when I kind of tuned it out when I first encountered it. And I haven't changed my, my feelings about that. Yeah, I remember a few years ago I mentioned that book and you had you kind of shrugged at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't yeah. know about that one. Yeah. <laughs> but since I was gonna talk about Ken Show, I thought, you know, I, I really should open it up and, and uh pull some of some of what uh uh he has to say about the subject. And a lot of it is uh not all that different from Dogen. He does quote Dogen explicitly in in there okay have to go through it again i haven't looked at it in years (laughs) yeah 
Sean, you, you were about to say something, I think. Uh, yeah, can you hear me okay? Yes, yeah. Um, okay, so forgive me if you mentioned this already and I just um, forgot, but we're talking about the difference between like Kensho and the different views of Kensho between mm -hmm. the schools. Um, does the similar thing apply to like Satori? Um, yeah, in fact, those or? two terms, I think Kensho and Satori are typically seen as being synonymous. So I, I wouldn't be comfortable trying to slice and dice those. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I, I thought I had been told that um, Kensho was sort of the, um, like you said, like the flash of enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Um, or often with like koans, you get that flash of enlightenment, it comes and then it, it, it goes. Um, but I heard that like Satori is more like um, the enlightenment itself or that um, like fully realized enlightenment, like the realization that um, okay, like it, it stays, Yeah, you know, once you have it and then it's permanent, like it stays okay. um, forever. So it's like a Kensho is like a flash of a, Satori and then Satori is the like, I don't know, permanent okay. abiding. Yeah. Enlightenment. Well, and I didn't know if that was a different, if the difference, if that's like a, from a different school view of it or if that's a misinterpretation or if Soto's just like, because I know they say the, like you're saying the practice is the point. So if it's like, yeah, that's just whole like, you know, not important or. Well, yeah, I would say that within the Soto tradition then that view of Satori, uh, it just would, wouldn't be seen as being helpful. Whereas Kensho, with, if you approach it cautiously, it, it is kind of descriptive of practice. So, so we can, we can uh, work with that. But Satori, to have that sense of permanence, uh, becomes hugely problematic. Uh, so you, I don't think you would see reference to that by Coben or, uh, or anybody else, unless it was just putting up the, the, the flashers saying, you know, warning, warning, <laughs> be careful here. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anything else before we chant out? A book that really helped me with, with sitting meditation was um, Breath by Breath, which is by Levine or somebody like that. And um, one of the things that really helped me was when I was doing basically Breath by Breath, it's an Anapadas. He goes over the Anapana Sutra. Yeah. And um, which is supposedly Buddha's instructions of meditation. Mm -hmm. One of the, one of the in, in doing that and bringing that into my own practice, one of the things that really helped me was changing my own language when I was sitting. And I would, I would, I would say instead of, I would, I would use the word locate, like locate the breath, locate calmness, locate whatever. 
and the reason that was really helpful to me is because I, it was, that, that language was like, it's, it's, it's there. It's not like something you have to create or make up or, or um, invent. You're just locating it. And so in the practice of meditation, I, I think my viewing it as locating what's already there has been really helpful to me. So it's not something I'm creating. It's not something that I'm inventing or I'm making um, or, or chasing after yeah. <laughs> for that matter. Yeah. But I'm merely wading through all my delusional bullshit and locating what actually was there all along. So, and somehow I, that notion came up while you were talking, but. Yeah. Yeah, because locating means uh, the only way we can locate, we're, we're really paying attention. And that's an uh, important part of the energy we bring to, to this samadhi practice is, is, is the, the, the attention. That takes a hell of a lot of effort. It's yeah. not just about sitting there and spacing out. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Anything else? Sun's back out. Yeah, yeah she <laughs> is. All right, well, Keith, let's uh, pull up the screen and chant out then. He's ready. May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. All right. Well, next uh, gathering will be uh, Thursday. Good. Sitting, sitting at seven and talk about uh, eight, eight ten, I guess. Yeah. And I'll have my weekly email out tomorrow. So thank, thanks for coming and sharing your uh, Sunday morning with, with us. Right. Enjoy the day. Thank you.